That was actually a beautiful uh, song to end with. I, I actually had one more, and we're just running a little late, and I wanted to make sure we had time to get through this, and so I cut a song out. But that song really is the heart of this morning's uh, message, Here's My Heart. Because it's dealing this morning in 2 Timothy 3 with our hearts and the difference between what is authentic love and a love that is unauthentic. So read with me here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, that's without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And Paul says, from such, turn away. Skip ahead with me to verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, my manner of purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity. That word is agape, godly love. You've known my godly love and my patience persecution, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And then he says, and underline this in your Bibles, guys. We're going to hit this today. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers Wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which you have learned and have been assured, knowing of whom you have learned them. And that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you. We recognize in verses like this, we can see in the text that they're challenging. There's things in them that 2,000 years ago as they were spoke to this young pastor, Timothy, Paul would challenge him. And this morning, Lord, that we would be a people who has... We receive this, Lord, our hope, our confidence would be in you. You're the one who gives us strength. You're the one who makes us able. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the great apostle Paul. His last swan song, as it were, it's fourth quarter or five minutes to midnight. This literally, I don't mean it figuratively, it's his last will and testament. He'll never write another word after this. 
And he's writing this as Paul's quill would touch the page for the last time to anyone who would hear him. And he begins to speak about the last times. This this writing is directed toward who he calls in the first chapter here in 2 Timothy, his son in the faith. He loves this guy. Timothy, now a pastor in Ephesus. Paul had left him there. His father, we know, was Greek. His mother, his grandmother, Jewish. It appears that his father passed off the scene early. And his primary influences then were his mother and his grandmother. In fact, this had to be a conflicted home. I don't know how many of you have grown up in a home that was somewhat, whether it was mixed ethnicity, whether it was mixed faith, there's something there. Most of you wouldn't know by looking at me, but I'm half Irish. My mother was Irish. Bailey was her maiden name. My father, Hispanic. And there was a difference in the way that both of them grew up. I couldn't even speak to my father because I didn't speak Spanish and he only spoke Spanish. And so I'd just walk in, hi, grandpa. And he'd laugh at me and say hi as best he could. On the other side, I didn't know a lot of my family on my mom's side, but she grew up, her family in Shakota, Muskogee, Oklahoma. And there was tension. I was born in 1958. And so you can imagine the tension that there was between an interracial family. And so Timothy had to deal with that. He had a life that, that was mixed and influences coming from all sides. His father not allowing him evidently to even be circumcised as was the custom in the Jewish faith. That wasn't till later. Paul comes along, he, he disciples him, he gives his life to the Lord and he says, hey, come on. I want you to be circumcised. Not that he had to. There was reasons that he did. But in this text, Paul begins to speak of perilous times that are to come. Now, this is really important for you guys to grab hold of as we get through this text. Because when it speaks of perilous times here, I want to give you a backdrop into what Paul was doing at the time, what the scene was, because he speaks to these things in a way that you and I will miss it if we don't understand this. Paul is in a Mamertine prison in Rome now. How many of you have heard that term, Mamertine? Has anybody heard that term? No? It's literally, you guys, I mean, literally, I had to look at what this was and to see it. It's unbelievable. It's a coffin in the ground is really what it is. It's a cistern. There's one way in and one way out. They would lower prisoners into this thing. It's dug into the ground. One little hole at the top and they would have to lower them in and lower them out. It's death row. Now, Paul in this dark pit for the first time had experienced something that he'd never experienced before. He'd been in jails. 
We see it in, in Acts in Philippi. He's imprisoned. In Caesarea, he spends two years in there, but they weren't like this. Can you imagine being in a hole in the ground? He's writing this about this time. So it's cold. Those of you who have been to Israel in this time, and I have, it's cold there. So he's in the ground. It's cold. In fact, he had asked Timothy later on in this passage. He says, hey, will you please come and bring my cloak? It's cold. It's damp. The letter's written about 68 AD, over 30 years since Jesus had come onto the scene, died, had rose again. Jerusalem will be sacked within two years, fulfilling a prophecy that not one stone would be left standing. Nero is the current emperor and he's vicious, killing Christians. And he'll commit one last act this is a February, March time frame. By June, he's going to have Paul beheaded. And within a short month or so of that, by around July, there's civil unrest even in Rome. He flees and decides at 30 years old to kill himself. It's in a time when Jerusalem is surrounded. So if you've ever been to Israel, if you ever see it, this big wall, it's surrounded. Civil unrest, which eventually leads to Titus Vespasian coming in and conquering Israel and tearing down all of those stones. But much had really changed. You guys... We see the, the rule of the emperors, and those are the ones we remember. We remember Vespasian. We remember Domitian. We remember Nero. These vicious men who would kill Christians, burn them at the stake. But there was actually a time in Roman history for about 400 years where it wasn't so. They weren't religious, but there was morals. In fact, it was said that there was times in Rome where they would brag that it had been 400 years since there had even been a divorce. Can you imagine? We've been in existence a few hundred years and look what's happened in that time frame to morals in America. And they were bragging about this. But now is a time of the emperors. It's an empire. Caesars now rule. In fact, Caesar worship is enforced. There's no choice anymore, which is what's caused all of the, the struggles. They're saying you can no longer worship in the synagogue. You can no longer go up to the Temple Mount because you can only worship Caesar. And so Paul sends this letter to his son, Timothy. And it's filled, if you look back at this, if you read the earlier verses, the earlier text in this letter, this last letter, there's pathos. There is emotion. 
This thing is dripping with somebody who's writing their last will and testament to their son and they're pouring everything they have into it. And he begins to draw a word picture for you and I. It's a contrast of love. He draws a picture of what love should look like but frames it in the context of perilous times and what it's going to look like in those perilous times. And couched in between these texts that we've read are three imperatives. Now, an imperative, when you think of this, the word imperative, it's not a suggestion. When, when someone from the pulpit says, hey, he wrote this, in this form, it's, an impre- it's a present imperative. It's no longer a suggestion. Paul is saying, do this. Without question, do this. And continually do it, or you must do this, Timothy. And so he starts In verse 1, with the first of the three imperatives, he says, this know. He's saying, know this, you must know this, continually know this. It's not a one and done thing. Know that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Now, why would he say you must You must continually know this. I literally, a few weeks ago, Pastor Mike told me he was going to Israel. I knew he was, but said, hey, I'm going to Israel. Can you take over uh, the pulpit in a couple weeks? And I I tell you guys, I love teaching, but I'm not a, a topical teacher. I love teaching the word of God line upon line, precept upon precept, book studies all the way through. And so to just grab a, topic it just I struggle with it a little bit I have to my, I have to get my mind around Lord what do you want to do in this particular point in time and this actually came from a few weeks ago when Pastor Mike uh, we had our one service Sunday and he had told me I think on the Friday before that and so I'm I'm sitting in church and he's in Second Timothy 3 he's at the end uh, around 20 something and he's talking about the word of God And a lot of times I do, as I normally do, I start going back to, I want to get the context. I want to get the history. I want to understand it. So I go back to verse one, and it's not that I'm not paying attention to Pastor Mike. I really am. But I I want to understand the context of uh, uh, of these verses. There's a backdrop to it. And so as I went back to these verses, this caught me. This particular passage right here, perilous days shall come. And I go, wait a minute. Perilous days are coming? He's in a hole in the ground? He's living in a time when Nero is lighting Christians on fire so that he can light his garden up and ride through. Christians being fed to lions. The writer of Hebrews goes through a lot of these things. And I go, perilous times? 
are going to come. They're dying for their faith. Now, when we think of last times, what do we think of normally, guys? We remember the disciples asking Jesus, tell us what's going to mark the last times. Everybody's interested because we want to know, Lord, when, when you're about to come, tell us. And so Jesus begins to speak about a time that's going to come, but he speaks of it in terms of the atmosphere that is going to take place. The, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of wars. All of those things. And those are important for us to know. Obviously, they're signs of the time. But now, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, I want to tell you about the last times and what it's going to look like inside the church. The word perilous is a word that's only used twice in Scripture. It's used here in 2 Timothy, and it's used in Matthew 8 when we see the Gergesen demoniacs. It says they would come out of their cave and they would prevent men from passing. And it uses the word, they were fierce. That's our word here, perilous. Translated perilous here in 2 Timothy, fierce. There's an idea of fierceness, just as they would come out and they would prevent people from passing. Paul's now saying, hey, there's going to be something that takes place that begins to prevent the word of God going forth, the work that God wants to take place in our midst, in this little church in Bakersfield, California. He wants to do something. And Timothy begins to address a spirit that's going to rise up in this age. This word is derived from a base word, and it literally means to pull down in strength, to diminish strength. Do you see that in our society today? A diminishing of what's right and what's wrong. He goes on in verse 2 and it says that men, and this is the perilous times, guys. Underline this. Capture this in your heart. You want to say, what is going to be in the last times? What's going to mark the last times? Perilous times are going to come. What is going to mark that? Men shall be lovers of themselves. That's the perilous times. He's in a hole in the ground. People being killed all around him. And he says there's an inward threat that's even greater than your death, Timothy. It's greater than being lit on fire. It's a greater peril to the church than anything else that's going to happen. And I believe today we live in that day. If it was last times 2,000 years ago, and it was from the time Jesus died and rose again, the last times began. They believed it 2,000 years ago. We believe it today, and we are in the 5 to 12 
period of time. It's five minutes to 12. The alarm's going off. We are in the last times. Effectively, self-love is going to be the pinnacle, he says, of not only human existence, but it's going to begin to infiltrate the church. And everything after this phrase, lovers of self, is a word picture of what it looks like when love becomes inward. You guys have experienced this in your life. I know many of you, you've experienced people telling you, hey, you've got to love yourself before you can love others. I get the sentiment. I get that they're saying, hey, you know, you really can't help people unless you're whole. But that's not really true. There's an inward love and a looking in that begins to diminish who we are in Christ. And it leads to things that are described here now. And Paul writing to Timothy says, hey, why are men, mankind, anthropos, that's the word he uses here. Why are men lovers of themselves. It's going to be in the last times. Why do you think men are lovers of money? Because it benefits me. Why are men boasters? Who does it make look better? If I boast of myself, who does it make look better? Is it you? No, if I'm boasting about myself, it's making me look better. Why are men proud? He says they're going to be proud. And they're going to become blasphemers of God. How do you become a blasphemer of God? Because if you're the highest order in this type of thinking, then you make the rules. And even God's not as important as you. You get to make the rules. You guys, this concept really struck me. These things seemed in my mind when I read them, not like last times things. Think of this next one, disobedient to parents. Last times. Now, when you read something like this, I know if your mind's like mine, it goes to that age group. Hey, maybe it's my 10-year-old smarting off. Oh, maybe even in high school when they get a little bit older and now they, they become really tough. You guys, until a few years ago when my mom passed away, I'll be 65 this year, I was still a child. This isn't speaking of an age definitive thing. This is talking about an assault that's going to take place in human existence in the church. And we'll see that in the text. That's going to grab hold of the heart of men where we begin to rebel against the idea and the concept of family and who's important. The Judeo-Christian values are steeped in the father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, patriarchy, the importance of parents and grandparents in our lives. My son sent me a, a little uh, video that he had uh, got. How many of you have uh, heard of PragerU? I, I don't 
uh, listened to it an awful lot, but I've, I've heard it. I've heard a few things, and he sent me a clip. Uh, Dennis Prager does these firesides. He's a Jewish man, and it seems like a really neat guy in prepping for this and, because I saw this, and it really had a lot to do with the text. Um, I saw something that was interesting. He, he is a guy who deals with a lot of uh, societal norms that are taking place and goes, what is going on? And compares them a lot of times because he's a, a, a Jewish faith. He compares them a lot of times with things that are going on in the Judeo-Christian, uh, for him, uh, the Judaism and the Ten Commandments. And so he's looking at that and he has this fireside and it's about a trend that has been happening in the baby boomers. Now, baby boomers are, you know, 75 all the way down to, I think it's something like mid fifties or I'm not sure where that age group, but I'm a, I, I would be considered a, a boomer uh, at my age group. And he says that something happened. He goes, we got dropped on our head as baby boomers. He goes, because we began to generation, the next generations began, we began to see in America less and less importance of mothers and fathers in homes. It happened with the government and the push to remove families from decisions in schools and every other place that we see. And he cited a statistic that was shocking to me, you guys. It was just shocking. One out of every three kids, and I know this to be true. I've experienced this. One out of every three kids keep their kids and quit communicating with their parents over some incident. One in three. Can you imagine stopping? I, I, I couldn't even imagine not talking to my mother. Did I get mad at my mom? Yeah. Did I get mad at my dad? I was too afraid of him to say it, but yes, I did. But I couldn't imagine stop talking to them and withholding my kids from them. But it's happening all over America right now. This is at the heart of disobedient to parents. Why? He says it in verse 3. He says they're without natural affection. That word affection is without natural love. And there's different words in the Greek. This is the word astorgos. Without love for others. Without love for family. There's no God-breathed love for one another anymore. And this kind of infected love creates what verse 4 tells us. Lovers of pleasure more than... and. My version, I read out of the King James, it says more than. Your version might say something different. I believe the correct rendering is actually instead of. See, because if I said more than, then I could say, well, I love God, but I just love things a little bit more. And there would be a comparison. He's not making that contrast. He's saying loves pleasure, lovers of pleasure, instead of loving God, replacing God. With their love. He's saying this is what's going to mark the last days. Why would this. Be important to Timothy. Be important to you and I. 2000 years ago when you look 
back at the context of what was going on there. I believe it's found in verse 5. When it says they're going to have a form of godliness. You see, he's speaking to a church. He's speaking to a time in history. This parenthetical time that he calls perilous. That hadn't happened yet. It's yet to come. And in that time... It's going to infect the church so that you won't be able to tell the world from the church. You guys, I think we, we live in that time. We have a lot of churches, a lot of all over the town, all over town. You can find churches on every corner. You can't necessarily find churches that teach the word of God. He says they're going to have this Christian lingo. It's a form of godliness. Maybe cute little sayings. Maybe from their own place or sphere of influence. They're going to say, hey, man, I just want to give thanks to God for this Emmy. Hey, meet me at the after party afterwards and we're going to party down. Because there's nothing really happening in their lives. There's words that are going out might be a bumper sticker or a cool slogan. Hey, me and Jesus are okay. But Paul's saying it's an illusion. It's a form of, it's a morphosis, the word in the Greek. It's a morphosis of it. It's a morphosis of godliness, but without, he says, power. That's that same word that we find in Acts. When Jesus said, wait, don't go anywhere. You just wait in Jerusalem for what? Wait for my Holy Spirit to come, to fall upon you. To bring and endow with power from on high. Why would that be so important for Jesus? Remember, guys, this can't be about that, hey, we're going to go out and you're going to be able to perform miracles. They'd already done that, right? He sent them out two by two. They'd been out. They'd touched lepers. They'd healed the blind. They watched it all happen. They'd done it themselves. This can't be just about an outworking of those kind of things. It has to be about something that would happen inside their own hearts and minds. I believe it's a power to transform. The word of God tells us to be being transformed by the renewing of your minds. The power to live fully given over to God. Vessels fit for the master's use. That's what he calls us to be. Wait for that power. And he's going, this people are without that. They have no power. And it's why you see a world in a church today. And I'm saying church in the general sense. That's without power. People's lives aren't being transformed. They aren't being renewed. They go to church. They check a box. Maybe I'm speaking to the choir because you guys are here today. But we can do the same thing. We can be caught up in the same things. This can be nothing more than rote things that we do. And we can have a form of godliness. 
And now Paul gives the second imperative. He goes, you must, Timothy, you must continually turn away, he says, from such turn away. This is a warning to you and I that the spirit of the age that's infiltrated infiltrated the church is going to wreak havoc on it and we are to stay away from it, have no part of what's going on. This perilous event is going to be veiled in Christianity, in the term Christian. Do you realize that over three quarters of seminaries today don't believe in the inerrancy of God's word? Seminaries. People going away to Bible school and they don't believe in the inerrancy of God's word, that it's perfect for all times, for all people, for all needs. And he begins now to implore us to stay away from that kind of seduction. This feel-good gospel. It's about you and your happiness. See, that's a lot of what's going out. How do you feel? God wants you to feel good about yourself. No, he doesn't. He wants you to have a deep and intimate and abiding relationship with him. How about the relevant church? And I'm not, guys, I'm not against the, the, the word relevant. Uh, I know there's churches out there and they mean well and, and the, the idea of a church being called relevant doesn't bother me and I'm not speaking against that. But there's a movement that's going on that says, hey, we've got to somehow make the gospel, the word of God relevant for our day and our age and our society, this dispensation. And that's not true. God's word is perfect today, yesterday, and forever. Today, there's no backing off of it. That's what we believe here at Calvary Chapel. You see, we need preachers who are teaching the word of God, not trying to tickle ears and build a big congregation. We need preaching that comes from saying there is a standard and all of us have fallen short of it. But there's one who has redeemed us. Repent, turn, be transformed. We don't need five steps to a better me. We need a church and a church family that's willing to swim against the flow. Not cute little tricks on the internet and postings that we make on our favorite social media. Alan Redpath is quoted as saying, you can't be both a promoter and a prophet. Think about what he's saying. You can't be that guy who's out there and just, you know, hey, we got the best church. We're doing this and that. And a prophet, because guess what a prophet does? A prophet simply speaks the word of God, whatever God tells them to at any point in time. And sometimes it's not always the thing people want to hear, but it's the thing God wants to deliver. He's called us to a different kind of love. You know, 
Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What was it? Love the Lord God with all, all your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And then he says, and the second is like it. It's an extension of it. Love others. And so now when we jumped to verse 10, and the reason I did that is because he begins to draw a word picture of that kind of love. He says this kind of love, he starts in verse 10 with the idea that it's predicated in the truth of the gospel. In verse 10, it says, but you have fully known my what? My doctrine. You have fully known what I believe. The word of God and how important it is. You see, he goes on in those verses after that and he begins to say, not only did I preach it, not only did it come out of my mouth. He goes, it was evidenced in the manner of life that I lived in front of you. Of my purpose in life. In my faith that's being lived out. Not just sweet words. He says in my charity or love, agape, godly love. Not a form of true godly love. And patience with which I have endured for your sake. Paul's going, I was an example Timothy, remember this because you're pastoring a church. Be an example. He's going, does your love look like this, Timothy? It'll need to. If we're going to endure the perils of this last time. And then he says something. Here's how you'll know it in your life. This is why I had you... Mark this when I was reading this. It says, all that will live godly will suffer persecution. How many? Say it with me, guys. How many? All. Not one in a million. Not one in a hundred thousand or a thousand. Not even one in a hundred or ten. It says, and all will suffer persecution. You guys, that cut me to the quick. Because I don't think this is talking about, and that's why I think Paul makes the distinction. He's in a hole in the ground. He knows shortly Timothy is after him. He's going to be killed. He knows he's already seen the patterns. He's watched as every disciple before him has gone already to be with the Lord. Killed viciously, you guys. These are people who literally were skinned alive, turned upside down and crucified. And yet they would profess their faith. He'd seen that. He knew what was going on. And he's going, my son, Timothy. He's going, there's going to be a persecution. I don't think it was that kind of persecution that he was talking about specifically and only we don't live in a day and age at least in america today where you're being thrown in prison 
but there definitely should be something that cuts cross-culture in my life and your life. I remember years ago, I had a, a guy I worked with, and I never realized how closely people look at you until this happened, and I went, oh my gosh, when they hear you're a Christian, they really look at you. I had shared with other uh, people at, at work, had heard it, had been around. And one day we were just sitting there. There was about five of us and we're sitting around. And all of a sudden he goes, aha, I caught you. And I looked and I went, caught me what? He goes, you cussed. I said, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> yes, you did. I heard. Did you hear him? He looks over at the other guy. Yeah. He cussed, didn't he? Guy goes, no, I don't think I heard him cuss. How about you? Did you hear him? No, I didn't hear him either. You got away with it this time, but I'm going to catch you. <laughs> I went, okay. I don't know what to tell you. You go, why? Because I was living a life that cut cross-culture. Anybody who works out in the oil fields, at that time I was out in the oil fields, it's a pretty rough place. And I was living a life that was something different than many of them were living. And this was somehow painful to him. And he wanted to catch me. That's what God wants our lives to be. I'm not always that. And in fact, this was convicting to me because I go, God, I want to get to a place not where I'm obnoxious and people don't like me because I'm obnoxious, but because I'm cutting cross-culture and I'm not afraid to preach the gospel of Christ that leads to salvation. That's what he's called you and me to do. Not our pastors, not the people that are in the pulpit, you and me. We're to look different than the world we live in. And then Paul gives the third imperative. He says, but you need to continue. He says, you must. It's the Greek word minnow. To be present. You must be present in the things which you have learned, which you have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them from. There's something about being current in our relationship with God that keeps us in love with him and it keeps us from looking like the world. It keeps us from having a form of godliness and it keeps us being in love with the one who called us and saved us. He's saying, Timothy, go back to the basics. Remember, not only the word that was received, who you received it from. See, remember in those first verses, it was children that were going to rebel against their parents. And he begins to point back. He goes, you remember where you heard this? Do you remember when you first heard the word of God? He brings him back to his childhood. He says, you've known the scriptures. How did this young boy, Timothy, who was brought up with a Greek father, who was opposed to the gospels, how did he hear? 
He was opposed to Judaism. Wouldn't let him be circumcised. Wouldn't let him follow those things. He heard it because a mother and a grandmother were committed to sharing the word of God. Can you imagine the father telling him stories of Zeus and of the Pantheon? And his grandmother, Lois, coming alongside him. I want to tell you about the great I am. I want to, through the Shema, she would say, remember this, the Lord our God is one God. Parents, don't neglect that in your children's lives. And those of you who are now older, remember somebody spoke into your life. They spoke into mine. And it's those things. Maybe he was hearing stories of Hercules. And his mother comes along and says, I want to tell you about a long-haired guy named Samson. Now God used him. Maybe stories about Mount Olympus that say, I want to tell you about Sinai and what God did on this mountain. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to sing a last song. It has a lot to do with this, guys. As Paul was there in this dark, dirty place, he was speaking the most important things and he's speaking to you and I today. Get serious in your relationship with God. No more playing around. This song is going to give us opportunity. All of us. I'm going to have maybe uh, Pastor uh, Mike, anybody, uh, maybe Mark come up. Maybe there's some in here today that go, I've been playing around in my faith. I've had a form of godliness, but I'm, I've been denying the power. And it's time to get serious. And there's going to be people here. The song is, I have decided. It's a remake of it. A little bit different version, but it's the same words. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He wants us to get serious. And as Paul would put his last quill to the page, knowing that Timothy would suffer the same, his encouragement wasn't about how to avoid the fate that awaited him and would probably await Timothy as well. He simply gives him three imperatives. He says, you must... Continue and be watchful and be aware that there's coming a time when people are going to creep into the church and they're going to have a form of godliness. And he says, you must stay away from them. Don't let them infiltrate your lives, your church. And then he says, continue with the basics and recognize that there's people in your life that you can 
ministered to and that have ministered to you in your life and speak the truth and be different. Cut cross culture to the world. Follow hard after Jesus. It was a short 20 years after this. John would be actually in Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus at this time, the pastor over Ephesus. John would be released from Patmos. He would come into Ephesus. His final days there, 20 years. He had this revelation from God of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. He writes it down. He pins it. And in that book, he speaks to the seven churches which were in Asia Minor, one of them being Ephesus, 20 years later. He says, I know there's some good things going on. And maybe that's in our lives today. Maybe there's some good things going on. He goes, I know there's some good things going on. How you've done this, you've done that. He says, nevertheless, I had something against you. He says, you've lost your first love. Tells him three things. He says, go back. Remember. Get at the foot of the cross. Repent. Turn away wherever you're at. 180 from where you're at today. 180. And then do the first works. And that word first can be also translated the best. The best works. What do you think that best works was? Love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. That's what he's called us to, guys. No more playing around. No more playing church. To be a people who are set aside for his use. We're in the last times. We're in perilous times. Let's sing this song.